This is the Education Gadfly Show. Star Wars, that was the one with the little guy who was like, call home. <sighs> Robert, they're not funny. It's just not funny. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, the Jedi Knight of Education Reform, Robert Pundicio. Is he uh, Bobby Knight's younger brother, coach at uh, uh, Come on, don't be, don't be a buzzkill here, Robert. We're all going to have fun watching that Star Wars movie. Hey, anybody know, have, have they rated it yet? Is it PG or PG-13? Uh, it has been unrated for so long. And, of course, this is important for those of us that have kids and mistakenly promised that we would take them before uh, thinking about so, the fact that this movie might be rated PG-13. Star Wars, that was the one with the little guy who was like, call home. Robert, it's not funny. It's just not funny. It's not funny. You know, I, maybe this is an age oh, phone thing. Was phone Robert. Right. Maybe this was not a big part of your childhood Dude, since you grew Star up Wars uh, came out when I was BC. in middle school. So I was like in the sweet spot of that stuff. So why? So why? Why this? Why all the cynicism? I, I, I the, don't quite. It's not cynical. I just I've I never understood how it became a thing. Yeah, it's a great story it's a great legend it's you know it fits right in with all those other great legends such as i don't know <laughs> name them uh, i like the hobbit you know i don't know uh, the bible uh the odyssey hmm? i i just don't think I, I i did those kind of drugs in high school mike Okay, well, fine. Uh, you know, if you don't want to have fun with the Star Wars thing, that's fine. That is your choice. And you know what? I, I, don't, I don't have we fun. Believe I, I don't in, like people who do. We believe in school choice uh, here, <laughs> and we believe in movie choice as well. Okay, it's almost the end of the year, but we are going strong. Lots to talk about in education reform, especially a certain law that the president signed last week. Let's start with that. Clara, let's play Pardon the Gadfly. Last week, President Obama signed ESSA into law. Mike, can we get a preview of what's to come in 2016? Well, first of all, there's going to be a big debate on whether we say ESSA or if we start saying ESSA. Uh, Robert, what do you think? I'm still trying to get used to not saying ESEA. Yeah, yeah. But No Child Left Behind, that is definitely... It's been left behind. It has been left behind. It's it's in the rear view mirror. So so what are you saying? ESSA or ESSA? I I haven't really decided yet. I mean, uh, in my head, I think I still say ESSA, but ESSA... I guess Essa. we're going to say Essa. Yeah. Hmm. Essa. Uh, E-S-S-A. Yeah. Speaking of 1970 nice references. So, <laughs> bless me. So, here's the scoop. Uh, it's going to be a hurry up and wait time in 2016 is my, uh, is my preview. The states are chomping at the bit here to finally take advantage of the newfound flexibility that they've got in this law. But on most counts, I am afraid they are going to have to wait for the federal regulations to come out. Uh, oh, Lord. And this is an interesting timing. You've got John King, who, for some unknown reason, uh, the administration is not nominating to be the next education secretary, but merely the secretary designate. Because they don't have to. Uh, Why well, have a fight you don't need? Because, I don't know. Because that constitution. constitution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, details. Uh, details you know, right. because so we're in a fashion. rare moment of bipartisanship and they might want to continue that. Uh, anyways, he's going to be in charge of coming up with the regulations for this law. Although the, the law itself tries to say at every turn, Mr. Secretary, hands off, buddy. Yeah. Hands off. Uh, still, uh, we got to wait. Easy regulations that. to write. Uh, and well, they should be. I mean, they should just basically restate the law in most cases. Uh, but then the states can start getting to work. And those regs aren't going to come out probably until the fall mm-hmm. when we are very close to a presidential campaign and a new administration. Hmm. 
So uh, this is going to be interesting timing. It's going to be, I would say, really a, a 24-month process, well, at least 18 months until uh, we see what states come up with. But hey, you've had some ideas on this, Robert. Uh, one of the big issues in the new law is that states get to come up with some indicators of school quality that do not have to do with test scores. Uh, that is true, but but now you're making me just now think, well, to what degree will they just say, hey, you know, what? we've invested so much time in what we're doing, let's just keep doing it. Well, they have to come up with something that's not test scores. That is now required by the law. So you have a suggestion on what they might do, which is what? Well, I mean, I'd love to. This is this is heresy. I know if you're a good reformer to say, let's start measuring inputs. Uh, but I, as as you know, I'm very concerned with curriculum narrowing. And I want to see us get back to a day when kids got a nice, rich curriculum, not just reading and math, but but science and history and art and music. Mm-hmm. Is it the worst idea ever to suggest that that school should have some kind of minimum guidelines for the amount of time kids spend learning those subjects, not just reading and math? Not the worst idea ever, but I was just kidding. <laughs> Not the no. worst idea I've heard in the last 30 seconds. No, look, no, look, I, I think that might be appropriate. I mean, here's the, here's the goal here is that we want a balanced look at school quality. Right? Sure. And we want to encourage schools to do good things. And if, if that includes teaching a well-rounded curriculum, because that's important in its own right. And by the way, that's the best way to teach kids how to read. By the way. By the way. Uh, and we say we care about reading a whole lot, uh, then then look, I'm, I'm open to it. You know what else yeah. I'd like to do for high schools? Tell me. The percentage of, of a school's graduates who vote in the next election. Really? Yeah, citizenship, baby. Well, no, look, I'm all for civics uh, and citizenship, obviously. A lot of states now are putting in that kind of bare minimums graduation requirement, which I frankly have advocated for a yep. while now that pass. you should be able to pass yep. the citizenship no, That could be another way to go. I, I'm not sure that meets my test for great school accountability. For me, yeah. it's baby steps. But yeah. hey, wouldn't it be nice if we could prove that we can do one simple thing yeah. before we got more You know, Sandy Crest on Twitter was making fun of my idea, saying that, oh, great, we're going to have schools paying kids just to show up to vote. But I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. Hmm. It's Once you establish that habit, maybe they'll keep at it. I One, I'm not sure that's how I narrowly want to define civic engagement. Look, I'm all for schools and encouraging civic engagement. Yep. Two, uh, do we really want to have a nation where people are sort of coerced into voting? Shouldn't it be a voluntary thing? Well, uh, you know, there are other nations that certainly coerce people into voting, and there's yeah. a healthy debate about yeah. that. I think you go both ways. But in this case, I think the point is, again, to send strong signals to schools about what school quality means, and that their civic yeah. duty should be a part. Of that. Well, look, I mean, to be earnest about it for one second, I do think this is a nice opportunity if you are a state uh, to think outside the box to get get back to some sort of the, these broader purposes mm-hmm. of schooling and maybe institute some accountability measures that that uh, that incentivize those things. Topic number two, Clara. A second generation of TFA teachers who were once TFA students are finding their way back to the classroom. Why are they doing it? Why are they doing it, Mike? Well, this is pretty cool, Robert. I mean, look, it this is, cool, is uh, there's been uh, there's some stories out there about uh, I forget what city this one was from, but uh, a, a woman who had grown up uh, in one of these high poverty schools and was taught by a TFA teacher, and now she's. Uh, in a school herself, uh, trying to help uh, mm-hmm. the next generation do as well as she did. She made it through college and, and now is given back. And look, it's first of all, it, it indicates how long TFA has been absolutely right. right. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, we we minimize sometimes TFA saying, oh, it's it's only a band aid. It's not that many teachers. Look, it's at what ten thousand teachers a year. That starts to add up to some pretty impressive scale. Yeah, and if you, if, I was wondering about this. I have no idea what the data would be, but I bet it's larger than we than we think. That if you figured out not just 
just a percentage of the teaching core who is or has been TFA, but the number of students who even once in their academic careers had a TFA teacher, I'll bet it's a larger number than we think, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. In fact, this is the outcome that you want, that mm-hmm. second generation, uh, so-called second generation TFA teachers are coming back. Look, you know, the, the, the education world is made up of people who are good at school. Mm-hmm. So uh, we want more of these to be low-income kids of color, the types of students that TFA was designed to improve outcomes mm-hmm. for. Um, and I've said this a lot of times on this podcast and elsewhere, eventually the charter movement, the ed reform movement has to start to look a lot more like the people it serves. And this is one way to accomplish that. So this is a great thing. Great. Topic number three. Supreme Court Justice Scalia came under fire for comments he made about black students in elite colleges. How was his rhetoric problematic? All right. Well, you know, well, you know, when you look at this, uh, you know, the, the quote people are using is certainly sounds bad, right? Because it yeah, sounds like he is implying that all African-American students should go to, quote, slow track colleges. Right. And of course, that is right. not the case, right? Uh, I think what he was trying to say in the context of, of the conversation they were having was that African-American students or any other students uh, who do not uh, meet the, the qualifications of a particular campus, mm-hmm. right, and have only get in because the, they lower those qualifications mm-hmm. for that group of kids, right? that those students, those less qualified students would do better on other campuses. Mm-hmm. And I think there's pretty good research that says that's probably the case, right? That you want to match uh, the level of preparation that a student has with the level of rigor of a college sure. campus. Uh, what many people pointed out though, is that we, in many cases have the opposite problem, right? Uh, that, that too many African-American kids and low-income kids are undermatched that they, right. that they are, they could do great at Harvard, but for a variety of reasons, they go to their local community college instead. Right. It's, it's complicated. I have to say it's all, and I, I read the transcript uh, quickly. I should have spent more time with it. It was not entirely clear to me that he was uh, voicing his own uh, comments as much as, as quoting a brief that was mm-hmm. filed as well. He was asking about a brief. So it's very difficult when you read the transcript to, to, to parse out uh, what's you his know, words. Is and it what because was, of our last names that were defending Scalia? Yeah. I, I mean, so. look, we're pretty proud of him, you know, <laughs> Italian American right. on the court. Speaking uh, as a, as a, a, a white male, cisgendered, privileged uh, Italian American. Yes, exactly. That, uh, you know, we, you, you gotta love that. Now, of course, uh, we should point out that there's not just one Italian American on the court. No, no, no. We have two. We are well represented. When, when, but it's not our turn yet, is it? Uh, no, I guess it's okay. not our turn. All right, but here, here, here's another point, though, Robert, that we really need to make. You know, the, the higher ed affirmative action debates yeah. have, are always so frustrating, in my opinion. because And charged. Uh, and charged. And the reason they're so frustrating is, of course, the reason that we have this difficult dilemma in higher mm-hmm. education uh, is because our K-12 system uh, thank has you. not what I was solved say. the problem, yep. right? Is that we have these huge achievement gaps. Yep. Uh, and furthermore, the K-12 system is not doing close to everything it could to identify minority kids and low-income kids as early as possible who show a lot of academic potential uh, and do everything they can to nurture the talent of those kids. In fact, we have a system where if you're affluent and you live out in the suburbs you and, and you are academically gifted, you are likely to be identified as academically gifted, be given special programs and mm-hmm. services, get to go to tracked classes all the way from middle school and into high school, take lots of AP classes. In the cities where... <clears throat> The liberals are in charge. Uh, They have, by and large, decided that, 
you know, gifted and talented programs are evil and tracking is bad. Right. And so they've good gotten rid of all of that enough. stuff, right? Out of, yeah. out of this quote, conservative equity, yeah. they've gotten rid of all that stuff. So what happens? You're white and rich. You still get it. Yeah. You're poor and minority. You don't get it. And as a result, you know, those, those talented, accidentally gifted minority kids, poor kids often sit in classes that are, you know, heterogeneous where they've got classmates who are way, yeah. way behind them now probably are disruptive because the, the, the uh, liberals now want to get rid of school discipline mm-hmm. on top of it. Right. So we're just like, we're doing everything we can to keep low income and minority kids uh, from having a chance to get on the fast track to the Ivy leagues. Uh, it's, you know, because it, this is the problem and we debate affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, to, to all the members of the court, if we would just provide some opportunities for these low income and, and African-American kids starting in elementary school all the way through high school, it would not be as hard a problem. What you said. Boom. Okay. I'm, I'm a little bit fired up. About I could this. tell. I could tell. But look, I think, I think next time right. I'm going to write an amicus brief about this. I've never done that. Really? Yeah, I've never written an amicus brief. Do you think it, you have to have any particular legal training to do that? Or can you just sort of bust it out as not bad and send it in? I, I, I honestly do not know the answer to that. All right, but. we're going to look into that. Now, all right, that is all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Uh, now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. And for Amber this week, we've got Dara Z. Handler. Dara, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you. So earlier, Robert was being Mr. Party Pooper on oh, no. Star Wars. How excited are you? Super excited. I'm getting a little nervous that I don't actually have tickets yet yeah, yeah. Uh, due to travel plans and the fact that we can't see it at the Air and Space Museum, which was our original plan uh, until cool. January. And so we'll see it there in January. Who yeah. are you people? Yeah. Come on, Robert. <laughs> Oh, come on. Amber, I mean, Amber, Darren, you know, here was, you know, a, a physicist. All right. Some sort. All right. So, right. Something like Astronomer, that. Astronomer. Uh, yeah. Astrology. No, that's different. No. Spotlight. Go see Spotlight. That's a great one. Uh, also oh, oh, Darren, do we know, is it PG or PG-13? Have I they decided? I don't know. This is an important question for some of us parents out there. I wouldn't let it stop you. <sighs> really? With a five-year-old? It's Star Wars. <sighs> I didn't. I haven't let them. I, I've not. They've not seen the second trilogy because they're all PG thirteen and. and My five year old was terrified by Elf. So what do I know? <laughs> yes, I'm not, is, I'm not uh, kidding. She yeah, really was. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, Dara uh, is filling for Amber, and you you can't let us down. People love Amber's research minute. Make it your own, Dara. They do. I will do my best. Big shoes to fill. Uh, Today's fascinating study comes from Matthew Kraft at Brown University, and it's published in the current issue of Education, uh, Education, Finance, and Policy. It's Mm -hmm. on discretionary layoff policies Mm -hmm. in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. You'll probably already know this, but just a quick review. When districts need to reduce the number of employees, there are some very non-discretionary ways of doing that. Of course, there's seniority, last in, first out. But there's also very strict inverse objective evaluation criteria. You've the worst evaluations, you're the first to be fired. Again, not discretionary. Um, Reasons not to do either one, life what we know about, but using only value add might result in teachers focusing solely on test scores or in losing teachers that fill other needs at a school, things Mm -hmm. like that. 
So Charlotte Mecklenburg, they use a discretionary policy. Uh, candidates for layoffs are ID'd using whether the position is necessary or not, but also enrollment, job qualifications like your license, mm-hmm. length of service, aka seniority, and job performance as determined by principal evaluations. Mm-hmm. Now, student test scores are not officially part of the process, but the author had access to those as well, which I'll go into in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, between 2008 and 2010, because of the recession, the district laid off over a thousand teachers. Mm-hmm. And with that, the author asked two questions. First, under the discretionary policy, which teachers actually got laid off? Mm-hmm. And second, what was the impact of that policy on student achievement? Mm-hmm. We all know Charlotte has great data. I won't say more about that. So first, was it actually discretionary layoffs? Mm-hmm. Who was laid off? The obvious candidates, probationary teachers, teachers with insufficient license, teachers hired after the start of the school year, returning retired teachers, mm-hmm. uh, teachers with a temporary license or no license, but also, yes, teachers with poor evaluations. And the district laid off the lowest performing teachers across all levels of seniority. Mm-hmm. Good for and them. Good for them. Good. And lower performing tenure teachers were more likely to be laid off than higher performing non-tenured teachers. Amen. So it's not all about probationary status. So clear evidence that there was actually discretion being used. And used well. And used well. Well, so what is the impact of that, you might ask? I might ask. In fact, Daryl, what's the impact <laughs> mm-hmm. of that? So rem- recall that the job, the effectiveness was measured by principal evaluation and not value add. Hmm. So you might wonder, did it actually work or not? Uh, the impact on student achievement is suggestive. Some highlights laying off a more effective teacher as measured by either principles or value add lowered student achievement. So exactly what we would expect. Laying off a more effective teacher did lower student mm-hmm. achievement. Um, achie- but in particular, achievement of students who lost an effective math teacher went down significantly compared to students who lost an ineffective one. Mm-hmm. No similar finding for reading, however. So you're saying even with this discretion, there were still effective teachers that were let go that for is, one reason or another. Right. That is true. Okay. Um, but interestingly, the achievement of st- students who lost a senior teacher as opposed to an early career teacher is not statistically significant, which again is in line with previous research, i.e. we want to lay off the most, the least effective teachers. Okay, so taken together, results confirm that from an achievement perspective, LIFO is not the way to lay off teachers. Mm-hmm. Measures of effectiveness, not seniority, predict how layoffs will affect achievement. But, and now here's the, the mm-hmm. but, which I think, Mike, you might appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, while value-add scores would have helped identify effective teachers, principal evaluations mm-hmm. did a really good job of informing the layoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mike, I think you would agree that including non-rigid measures is important mm-hmm. rather than trading one inflexible layoff policy for another. I like it. I like it very much. And it's interesting, I mean, because there has been some research 
which uh, at least the conventional wisdom is, oh, principals don't know how to evaluate teachers. You think that's the conventional well, wisdom? Well, there's some conventional wisdom Not out there. I think that, I know. you know, well, of course, right. But, uh, you know, the, some of the reform crowd, he says, well, we had to come up with these teacher evaluation systems and force them down the throats of the states hmm. with a federal mandate. Uh, excuse me. Uh, because uh, <laughs> principals are hopelessly bad at evaluating teachers. Well, it turns out, especially on, on either end of the performance spectrum, really good teachers are really bad teachers. Principals are quite good at it. Yeah, that doesn't right? surprise me at all. I well, mean, kindergartners are good at it. I mean, it doesn't take much, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, this is pretty obvious most of the time. And I think what this study is showing, at least for this district, is principals are identifying additional characteristics that are valuable to students yeah. that aren't necessarily captured in the in a value add. Yeah. No, I think, and, and look, he, here's the great thing, though, is that Charlotte faced a difficult situation, as did many, many school districts, and because it used human judgment and mm-hmm. used it well, students benefited, right? It was able to do that in part because North Carolina is a very weak teacher union state, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the few states yep. where I believe collective bargaining is actually illegal. That's correct. Um, and uh, and so in a lot of other places, especially in, in blue, politically blue places around the country, districts did not have that choice. They would have just done LIFO. Uh, and almost surely that means that that kids lost out, uh, which is, look, it's another reason to keep fighting for these kinds of flexibilities for principals. Sure. Uh, I wish that was the fight we had been fighting the last several years instead of this uh, just crazy fight over teacher evaluation. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in schools, as you know, and it is just not that hard uh, to walk into a classroom and within minutes know whether you're in, in the classroom of a, of a teacher who is good, good better, best or or bad, worse, or oh my God. Yeah, but yet it is really hard in many places to actually be able to do anything about yeah, that uh, or to, to use that information when you have to make tough decisions like this. And I think what is particularly interesting is that some places might be worried that we could give schools and principals this discretion, but they're not going to use it, that they're still yeah. going to resort to seniority. And at least in yeah. Charlotte, after laying off kind of the, the low-hanging fruit, as mm-hmm. it were, that principals really were using yeah. job performance as yeah. The layoff criteria. And by the way, uh, it, not nepotism or things like that, which is the other uh, charge. Uh, people always say, well, you're just yeah. going to, you know, make sure that you don't uh, fire your sister-in-law. Right. Darren, of course, they probably did not have data on, on the no, family relations. <laughs> was, the, it's a large was there any differentiation in the study between uh, or among the principals in terms of their seniority, their achievement? In other words, can we, can we look at principals and say good ones make good decisions, bad ones make bad decisions? Or was that level of granularity not part of the study? It wasn't a question that the researchers asked. But it could certainly be possible given mm-hmm. the uh, robustness of the data that's coming out of Yeah, Charlotte. that would be a great question about were, were certain principles particularly good at making the right call. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, Dara, you did quite well. Thank you. We will have you back on this. After Star Wars. Others. After Star Wars. Absolutely. Fair All enough. right. Until next week. I'm Robert Pendicia. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.